broadband internet service providers in real simple syndication are proud to bring you Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. That over there is Jordan. And that over there is Carlin. Thank you very much. Today we are going to be doing a uh, pick from Jordan's. That's correct. Um, his list, I guess. I don't know. Do you keep a list? I do actually keep a spreadsheet of movies that I want to review. Nerd. Yeah. Right. Um, but <laughs> That's also, fun. also like I take a look and like I'll go online and I'll do searches for best movies on Netflix, and I'll troll like these uh, the other websites to see what they say are the best selection. Mm-hmm. Uh, that way. Um, not only are we getting just selections from ourselves and fans and everything like that, but we're also getting selections from lists where people go, hey, look, you should probably check this out because you wouldn't know about it any other way. So, and really, that's a good way to f- discover things because a lot of films I would look over and I would just go, eh, I don't really care about that. Let's move on. But if I get a recommendation from somebody, then I'm more prone to actually check it out. So, that's actually what happened with this film. This is a 1978 movie uh, that was filmed in between... Wait, this one? 74. Are you sure it was 74? 74, pretty sure 74. I thought it was 78. Let me hit hit the the trusty iPhone. But in, in the meantime, I will go ahead and give you the title and a little bit about the director. This movie is The Conversation. 1974. Really? Yes. Interesting. I thought Netflix said 1978. Jordan just likes to add four years to everything he talks about. That's how everything winds up being 2010. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because that was four years ago from 2014 when we're recording now. Yeah. So it's either four years ahead or four years back. Right. Exactly. What? So yeah. So 1974, the conversation. Yeah. This um, this is a film that was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. Big uh, name. Big, big name. name. Big name. We're we're break, breaking out the big guns here, but this is one of his lesser works. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, he's famous for the Godfather trilogy. He's also, of course, incredibly famous for Apocalypse Now. Oh, uh, yeah. It's yeah. a good one. Yeah, and, you know, they've got, like, three different cuts of it on Netflix right now. Yeah. Like, so, I would love to, like, sit down and, like, do a review of each of the different cuts. You that'd, know, like, be, that'd be cut. I feel like that might be a little tedious. That's a lot of work right there. Yeah. But there, he also did... Other films, in addition to that, one of them being Tetro. And all um, Tetro you can go ahead and find on Netflix if you want to see another uh, view of what, of what Coppola's works outside of Apocalypse Now and the Godfather trilogy mm-hmm. would be like. Uh, and there, this film has a ton of actors in this. Yeah, I was kind of surprised because I didn't look too far into the list of actors. Right. All I knew is Gene Hackman because, you know, he's kind of the face. Right, yeah. The face to the whole film, he's the main actor, right. so I knew Hackman, and then I didn't really look any further than that before I started watching, so all these people start popping up, and I'm like, oh, that's this person, that's this person. But anyway, Jordan can go ahead and tell us who is in the film. Well, some, some of the people that are in the film, some of the big names um, include, um, like you said, Gene Hackman, and he played the main guy, Harry Cowell. Uh, and he was, he's been in a whole bunch of things. If you've seen The French Connection, he was in that. Um, I'm a, I'm sorry for you because the French Connection was not one of my favorite movies ever. I haven't seen it yet. No, don't I plan to. No, I plan to though, just to know. Like every uh, people do talk about it. Yeah, I mean, well, the only thing that really is cool about it is like the combined subway car chase. Like I mentioned that on the safe episode. 
mm-hmm. because it, that was a very good part of the movie, but the rest of it wasn't really all that good. He's also been in a lot of other films. He was in a, a film, I believe, was in the 90s called Twilight, which had a lot of different um, really cool people in there. And, of course, it was before the whole... Twilight like, vampire right. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So, and then he also was in one about communists, co- communists or communism, called Reds, and that one's um, that one's available on Netflix. Twilight, Twilight is as well. Oh, okay. uh, the second French Connection, the French Connection Two, the sequel, is also on Netflix. Was Hackman in that as well? He was. Okay, so anyone who loves Gene Hackman, there are some more. Uh, movie recommendations you can check out on Netflix streaming. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jordan. That's that's very informative. Well, yeah. I, I try whenever I can to pull them, pull the other selections from Netflix, mm-hmm. so people can go. Oh well, I want to see what this person did and this person did and this person. So they don't have just one option. Another guy who was on here is someone who had a very short, but um, but well selected career. John Cazale, um as Stan. And Cazal, he only had a career that lasted about five years because he died entirely too young. He died, mm-hmm. like, he started working in f- films as an actor in, like, his 30s, and he only made, like, five films, and he died in his 40s. Did he have, like, a heart attack or something? I'm not 100% sure of the story. I didn't get a chance to look That's into crazy. it. crazy. He did a good job in the film. Yeah, yeah. He was Stan, um, who was um, Harry's associate, I guess you could say, protege, and he did a really great job of playing someone who was quiet and frustrated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he really, he, he, and that's kind of the the characters that he's known for playing. Uh, He was, again, worked with Coppola in the Deer, in the, uh, The Godfather, uh, and he was also in something called Dog Day Afternoon, and isn't, is Pacino in that one? Is that I believe so, yes. Yeah. And then he was also in... The Deer Hunter as well. So it's some big, big films. Yeah, yeah, big films. Uh, I think I think his association with Coppola kind of helped make him into a, a like a, a bigger star than he would have been if he had started lower and worked his way up. Yeah. But you know, association is such a big part of what happens with with film that uh, it's just the way that it goes. Yeah. Well, if you notice, there there are plenty films that you can pick out and see, oh, because this person worked with this director, right. they're they're gonna be attached to other projects. And they do that, you know, perfect example, you know, you saw Joss Whedon, you know, he did uh Avengers, but actually Cabin in the Woods was before Avengers, but I assume they were working on Avengers at the same time that they were gonna do Cabin in the Woods. So he right. got Chris Hemsworth because he was familiar with him. Right. Um so. I think Cabin in the Woods was actually filmed first and then yeah. they let it sit on the shelf for like three or four yeah. years. Uh, but also, another film that he did that was just him getting all of his buddies together was uh, Midsummer's Night, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, mm-hmm. um, which is now available. It, I actually own it. It's a, um, it's a filming of the Shakespeare play that Joss Whedon did at his house. Interesting. And he got, well, when his wife is an architect and they built the house. Uh, specifically with the idea of reading, having play readings and kind of art festivals at their house. What a concept. Yeah, so they actually filmed the entire movie at their house, and actors from Buffy, uh, Firefly, The Avengers, um, Dollhouse, all of his major shows, Angel, they all appear in this movie 
together as different Shakespearean characters. It's pretty cool. Cool. And it's all black and white, and, and it has a sexy score and everything like that, so I, I awesome. really enjoy it. Sorry, listeners, for bringing Joss Whedon into the podcast yet again. Well, another we character, another one that I was thinking of was uh, the girl from Antiviral. Be- uh, yeah, what was her name? Um, last name started with a G. Yeah. I, yeah, sorry. I can't remember off the top of my head at this anyway. point. But she worked with both David Cronenberg and his son. And Brandon, yeah. Brandon, yeah. So, I mean, there's another association there. Uh, another actor that was in the conversation, though, was Alan Garfield. You know, And he's been in a bunch of things. He's actually, uh, speaking of connections, he worked with... Um, the director of Chinatown, Rosemary's Baby. Uh-huh. Um, he was in the movie The Ninth Gate with Johnny Depp. Uh, and then he was also in a couple of other interesting movies. Beverly Hill Cops 2. <laughs> nice. Some, sometimes you have a paycheck. And mm-hmm. then he was also in One from the Heart as well. But also, uh, just, just to mention uh, some other names that pop up in the film but um, did not receive top billing. Robert Duvall is in this film. What did I miss him? I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, Where was he, he? Duvall was the. Um, he was the the executive. Yeah, he was the executive. Okay, yeah. I thought he looked kind of familiar, but I don't think they focused on him no. en- enough at any point in the film to really figure out who he was. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Thank it's, you for that. Yeah. Well, it's also kind of again, your your movie connections. Duvall was in THX one one three eight. Uh, Lu- Lucas's first feature-length film, mm-hmm. and Coppola was the executive executive producer on that film. There you go. And also speaking of another Coppola Lucas film connection, we have Harrison Ford playing the executive's secretary and doing a great job as a villain. Yeah, he really he really brought the um, kind of scumminess to the to the screen. And he's, he was also that kind of guy who, I don't know, you didn't know what he was going to do. Right. Like, he, he was a very loose cannon type uh, actor on the screen, and you just kind of like, as as an audience member, we're, we're like, well, where's he going to go? Like, is he going to get violent? Is he going to be cordial? Like, what's this guy going to do? Yeah. And he, he brought a real air of menace to it. Yes. And this was one of his early, I think one of his earliest performances. Like It's early. Um, because I think this was the point where Harrison Ford was was still working full time as a carpenter and showing up to film auditions wearing like his his carpenter's outfit, like with the, the you know, the tool tool belt and the jeans and the uh, the plaid shirt and everything because he actually wanted to show to the Hollywood executives that he was going to be able to uh, he was going to be able to make a living even if he didn't have to to work on these films. It was kind of his way of saying, "Yeah, I might be I might be pursuing stardom. I might be pursuing this, but it's not my only option and I'm comfortable with the options that I have in my life right now." Um I was just looking it up. Harrison Ford did have some more movie roles. Mm-hmm. Um prior to the conversation, but honestly, I mean, American Graffiti yeah. is probably... That's probably the biggest film that the, he did around that time. Yeah, probably the biggest one, but he, that wasn't even like a large role that he had in that. He was just kind of... Re- like, he was recognizable from the film, but he I don't think he spoke at all in that film. I can't... Re- I haven't actually seen... It's been American, a while for yeah. me. 
Great movie, by the way. Yeah. American Graffiti. It's on know. my list. It's I, on my I, list. Oh, man. You got to see it. It's really good. I like it a lot. Yeah, but uh, American Graffiti, that was probably his biggest role prior to the conversation. And yet again, like you were saying, conversation is one of the lesser known films from Coppola. So it didn't get a whole lot. So really, it wasn't until Star Wars. That he became big. Yeah, yeah. and that was just, what, how many? I think Star Wars. Three years later. Yeah, Star Wars came out in 77. 77. Yeah. Yeah, so three years later. Crazy. Yeah, it was so weird because I didn't know Ford was in it either. And then... That was a surprise to me, too. Oh, yeah. And then, like, that scene comes up where Gene Hackman goes in and he's supposed to give these um, these tapes to to the executive at this company. And there he is. And I was like, what? Is that, is that Harrison Ford? Yeah. Surprise! He looks so young, too. Yeah. Oh, my god. It's so weird. Because you look at him then and you look at him now. Big difference. You know, how people age is crazy. Mm-hmm. And... I've actually been thinking about that a lot because I because I we go back and we watch a lot of these older films and you know you see these people that right now you're just used to seeing on the older side right and then you see them when they were much younger and you're like you know this really wasn't that long ago it was kind of like when we watched the uh, Chinatown and then the Thomas Crown Affair and Faye Dunaway was in both of those movies yeah you know one where she was uh, younger sultry femme fatale and then and in the um, Thomas Crown Affair, she was the older, more mature uh, therapist that, that Thomas Crown talked to. Well, another uh, big one for me is, you know, you go back and watch a movie that I really like, Meatballs, with, um, you know, Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. He looks really, really young there versus what he's looking like now, and he's not aging gracefully no, now. No, not at all. But then again, you know, that's just what happens. But he know? is doing some pretty... Re- Pretty hilarious stuff. Oh, he's great. Have you heard I about like 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 the like the engagement photos he's been crashing and stuff like that? No, I have heard that he'll just like randomly show up at parties or bars and just hang out with people. I, yeah, I heard he crashed a bachelor party a couple. Oh weeks yes, ago. I heard about that one as well. That's interesting. Very interesting. He he's a, a hell of an individual. Yeah, well, you kind of have to be. You kind of have to be if you're going to be Bill Murray because you don't you don't die at one million times in a movie just to, you know... Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. But anyway, let's go ahead and talk about the conversation. Actually, real quick, I did want to point out, for Francis Ford Coppola, he was the writer and director of the conversation. He was. Um, And he had written... He's written a decent amount of scripts. Um, He did the Great Gatsby screenplay prior to doing the conversation. Uh, and then after he did the conversation, he did the screenplay for uh, Godfather Part Two. Yeah. Um, so he had directed Godfather prior to the conversation, mm-hmm. and then directed Part Two after the conversation. Right. And so this was kind of like a break for him. Yeah. This from is Godfather. this was like his vacation from the Godfather. Right. Which, if you watch this movie and you're like, how can that be a vacation? You know, at times this film was quite intense. It was. Um, and I. I think I just have to... No, 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 I'll save that for later. I was okay. going to jump to one part, but it's really towards the end. I should kind of save it. But it's a part I really, really appreciated, and you'll find out why. You know what I liked about this movie quite a bit um, was that it, it, it really captured the sense that it was surveillance footage in and of itself. I agree with that. You know, because there were... It was a lot of long shots. The film opens up with a shot that's got to be about two minutes long. And there's only this one character that it's focusing as it zooms into this San Francisco 
park area, mm-hmm. and it's this mime who's going around and imitating people. And you think, well, what does he have to do with the story? And then you find out that he's listening in on the same conversation that uh, Harry Call is listening into while he goes through and is, is actually performing the surveillance work. Well, one of the things about the intro to me is you at first you can't figure out what's going on because right. it's such a long shot and it's not focused on any one individual. It's just a bunch of people in a park and you're kind of just like... What's the point here? Like, right. what are we doing? And then it focuses in, so you kind of get the idea. And then you eventually understand that it's from the viewpoint of that person with that special microphone. Yeah, the shotgun mic. It looks like he, the person's a sniper. It does. That that microphone, because he's got, like, a, a scope on it, so you yeah. can tell where he's looking and everything like that. Honestly, I didn't understand until later in the film that he wasn't a sniper. Right. Because it looks so much like a, a gun. Um, and when... Uh, Harry eventually pulls out that piece of equipment. I mean, it still looks like a gun. Right. And you don't get a very long look at it either, and that's intentional because he doesn't want his competitor, who's also a friend, kind of... It's kind of, sort of... It's it's more it's more of a, a business rivalry where they don't like each other, it seems they like. They don't like each other, but they're cordial and they hang out, and yeah, I don't know. It, that, that was really interestingly done. Yeah, but... But also, something to think about is that if you think of words as a weapon, then a microphone that looks like a gun is a really powerful, you know, if you, if you think of words as a, a commodity or something that can be used to slay, some, to, to slay someone's character, then the microphone is the weapon that you use to, get, to gather those, those uh, bullets, so to speak, and then to, and to then to shoot them at that person. Well, and I think that's a fair assessment because... If you think about it, that's kind of what politics have become in our society today. It's, you know, it's ver- verbal assassination. It's character assassination through verbal actions. Yeah. You know, all these muck-flinging um, ads that, that go on all the time. I mean, that's the only way that politicians campaign anymore, I think. Yeah. Which yeah. is pretty depressing that we have to resort to such. Yeah, that they have to paint in the shades of aspersions. Yeah, exactly. Why can't you just stand up and say, this is what I've done, let me sell me, instead of, I'm just going to be the lesser of the two evils by making my competitor look like a total scumbag. Right, right, right. Here's my resume, rather than here's the horrible things that might... Exactly. But also, something that you mentioned is politics. Very interesting place to jump to in this this, uh, discussion very early on, because these were the same kind of microphones, and a lot of these techniques were the same kind of techniques that were used during the Watergate scandal. You're going to go there. Yeah. Yeah, and actually Coppola was, from what I understand, confessed surprise that they were actually using this kind of technology to do that kind of work because it seems like a lot of the people in this world that Call is is inhabiting work in, like, the security and private investigation fields. They're not like working for the CIA or the FBI or any kind of law enforcement agency. They're freelance, they're uh, individuals, and it seems like they might even be freelance for the private investigators rather than private investigators themselves. Well, in the beginning, I couldn't figure out, and I'm sure a lot of viewers couldn't figure out who Harry Call was working for. 
um, until you eventually find out he's working for himself. Right. When and for me, it was when he was editing, um, like going through the the uh, audio to try and clean it up, and he flipped out on Stan. Yeah. And was like, "This is my business. This is my job. Why, Why are you trying to take it?" Yeah. Away? He's like, it's, "It's my business." And that's when I was like, "Oh, so he's a private investigator, basically does his own surveillance." Yeah. But prior to that, I was trying to figure out, I'm like, is he, like, CIA? Is he FBI? Like, what's he doing? And I think that within film, when you see surveillance being done, your automatic assumption is some sort of government-run operation. Uh, And that's the assumption I had with this. But it was an interesting twist to kind of allow you to not know what's going on, like, draw your own conclusions for a while, and then eventually get the information that, oh, this guy, you know, does his own surveillance for private parties. Well, and you know, what's interesting is that I think the way that he works in surveillance makes him a very nervous person. He's paranoid as hell. I mean, like, paranoia personified. He keeps, like, what, three, at least three locks on his apartment door. Right. Uh, he like Stan is supposed to be his associate and his protege, his mentor, and everything like that. But he doesn't let him even touch the equipment. Well, and that that gets to the root of one of the big problems with Harry as a person. Yeah, it's that because of his job, because of doing surveillance, he has become so paranoid that he not only is trying to like extremely protect his his belongings and his house, but he's um trying to protect himself by not allowing himself to have like real deep real meaningful con- or, uh, conversations or deep meaningful relationships yeah. even further you know you see it with the his I guess girlfriend kind of that he celebrates his birthday with I, I wasn't sure if she was his girlfriend or if she was a hooker no, or, no, because she lived there. She lived in, in Oh, well, I mean, I guess hookers have to live somewhere, They have to too, live somewhere, though. right? So she could have been, but she, it, she, it, it seemed to me like she actually, like, cared for him and that there yeah. was some sort of, like, mutual interest beforehand. And she does say at the very end of the, of the scene with him that we can't keep doing this. I've yeah. waited a long time for you, and I just can't keep right. writing anymore. And he hesitates yeah. because he wants to open up at that point. But the issue is he just can't because he's so paranoid because he's afraid that someone's after him all the time. Yeah. And it 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 kind of comes true. Like Right. Well, it it comes true because he takes this tape the tapes um or the transcripts of the tapes and, and some of the information. I don't know if he takes the actual tape to the executive or if it's just a folder with the transcripts. And he goes to give it to the executive and of course Paranoid Harry doesn't want to give it to anybody else. Like the, yeah, but the person who's actually paying. Exactly. For it. So, so the first person who asks for it is is the the person at the door of the company, and he's like, "No, I need to give this directly to the executive." And so they're like, "Okay, well, we'll buzz you up." They send him up. The executive is no longer in the office for the day, so Harrison Ford's character as the secretary tries to get it from him. He's like, "Nope, nope, doesn't give it to him." Turns around and walks out. Well, what, what, uh, in my opinion, kind of uh, verifies that he's he's justified in being kind of paranoid is what goes on between he and the uh, and Harrison Ford's character yeah. at the convention for all yes. the new tech because he's obviously following him. Yeah, and then eventually when when Gene Hackman, well, when Harry uh, confronts him. He's like, why are you following me? He's like, I'm not following you. I was looking for you. Yeah. But here's the thing. If you're 
definitely tailing somebody, you're not looking for you're the not person. Because you know exactly where they are. Yeah. You're trying to be menacing. But here's the thing. The motivation of the secretary is something that's called into question. Yes. Because Harry is such an unreliable narrator that you can't Correct. really tell. And the movie is is almost completely from Harry's point of view. Well, I actually saw this film as a character piece. Yeah. I mean, it truly is a character piece. It's kind of like what happens to someone who gets so involved with their work in surveillance. Right. You know, what does that do to their personality? And how do they view their work? Um, and for that reason, I really liked it as a character piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's like your typical film um, because it's so much from an, a kind of whacked out perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and that's what I mean with, with him being unreliable is that mm-hmm. there's this idea going through his mind that he can't really understand why someone would be following him or just looking for him. He thinks someone is tailing him all the time. Yeah. Um, and, and really, if you look at, her, at the secretary's motivation, um, the, he's just trying to get the information. He doesn't understand Kyle's point of view that he must pass the information on right. to the, the person who pay, is paying the money for it. Um, so he's trying. He's trying to just do his job in a lot of ways, but he's also in, in some in, in some ways right. he's just trying to do his it's job. What it seems like, but he could be. He could have really been trying to do more. Right, and it depends on whether or not the secretary is involved with the couple who's being recorded at the very beginning. Right, because I don't know if I read this, but as the Netflix summary says. An audio surveillance expert faces a moral quandary when he suspects that a couple whose conversation he's been hired to record will be murdered. So he thinks that the people that he was talking to in the, or he was listening in on in the plaza with his shotgun mic are going to be killed because they're talking about how the executive will kill them and everything like that. So he believes that by giving this documentation to the executive, he's helping cement these people's death. Well, it's interesting, in my opinion, because the way you hear one of the key moments of audio from that conversation, from the conversation, right. name of the film, um, you first hear it as, he would kill us if he had the chance. Yes. Which sounds like we're doing something we're not supposed to do, and if he found out, he would kill us. But in the end, the way that line is delivered was changed yeah. to show different perspective. Yeah. And it was basically like, he, it, it was kind of, a, it was said more of like uh, an intonation of, he would get us first right. type thing. Right. And they definitely reshot that yeah. and, and did a different delivery of the line, which I think is interesting because that shows how, you know, Harry kind of out of context took the line delivery as one thing yeah and then once he found out what really happened you know he processes it in his mind and remembers the line and he hears it a different way yeah because he knows what yeah. it's about and i also wonder if maybe he goes he you you see him a lot doing a lot of the audio cleanup work the sweetening yeah. work so i'm wondering if he's able to sweeten it up enough to where he realizes oh no I, I, I was completely wrong. Because what we find out is that the people having the conversation are plotting to, plotting kill, the to kill the executive yeah. rather than the other way around. And 
you know, the way that the way that it's set up, it looks like the executive is suspicious because maybe he's in some kind of relationship. It, the, the conversation occurs between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the way that it seems, it looks like they're in some kind of romantic relationship. Right. So it, the implication at the very beginning of the movie, and this is something that I liked about the movie. They never make this clear because... From Call's perspective, he's just hired to do a job. He's not hired to know the context of what goes into the job. He's right. just hired to gather the the audio. Mm-hmm. You know, so it it had this interesting thing where you you get the automatic supposition, like you do in Chinatown, that this work is a divorce case. Mm-hmm. You know, that he's like trailing the woman, recording the audio as she meets with her paramour. To, to get evidence for the executive so that then he could go ahead and start divorce proceedings or something like that. But it's actually, it seems more like as, as the film ends and the, the executive actually dies, that the executive, it was more of a business thing, like maybe an embezzlement issue or some kind of uh, backroom dealing that went bad. It kind of seemed like a takeover yeah. to me, as we, it, that the woman would be in position to take over uh, the company if if the executive were to be deceased. Right. So they took care of that. Um, but you you were saying about it basically just being interesting because it's all from Harry's perspective with yeah. this stuff. I think that's what makes the movie even better, in my opinion, because if you watch it like a lot of films are where you kind of see what everybody's doing throughout the film you know you're as an audience member more omnipresent throughout the events right um i think it takes a lot of the suspense away because you know all the aspects of what's going on if you're seeing it from one person's perspective you get to learn along with them and you get things in bits and pieces yeah and i think this film was very good in delivering bits and pieces of the story um to the audience to keep them engaged. And it wasn't a situation where there was too much space in between these little niblets of knowledge. Yeah. I feel like it was done so it was just enough to keep you on the edge of your seat, like, when am I going to get my next piece of this? Yeah. And I think a lot of the time they use the actual audio from that one conversation. Yes. Which is probably why this is called The Conversation, because, I mean, obviously it's it's all framed around that conversation. Right. But it keeps being replayed and replayed and replayed throughout the film, but it not in its entirety. Right. They replay like key parts that will give you different information at different times during the film. And for that reason, I think it was a very smart use of this recording of, of the conversation. And one thing that they did that was interesting was that they contrasted, Coppola contrasted the audio of the recording and the process of the audio enhancement and sweetening to what actually goes on. Like, there's... this The sound in the film is so minimalist. It's really incredible how, you know, how much the actual audio from the conversation stands out. Because when he's working by himself, 
Kyle doesn't talk. He doesn't, like, say anything to himself. There's no kind of dialogue, monologue that he has. When he's, talk, when he's communicating with Stan, he's very standoffish. He doesn't give him a lot of information. Right. Um, it seems almost like a lot of his information, a lot of his communication with Stan is done through verbal cues rather than actually giving him, you know, directions one way or another. And then... He doesn't have much of a, 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 a his relationship with the woman um, is is very much her talking to him, trying to draw him out, and he won't let her. So there's huge portions of the movie that they leave with either silence, complete silence, right. or just the sound of the what's going on around the camera, which, which I really like. Oh, that was great. I really like. I feel like too often filmmakers get the impression that you need to fill every bit of dead space with some sort of music. Right. And every conversation and scene with some sort of background of music. Right. And I just feel like that's not the case. Like, sometimes it's so much more powerful to use no music at times and just allow people to draw their own conclusions on how they're supposed to feel or however they want to feel. Because obviously, and I know we've talked about it on other podcasts, you know, music informs the audience members how they're supposed to feel. Yeah. You know, there are different tones. While it is kind of stupid, you know, there's there's some commercial, I forget what it's for, where it shows how audio is used, and it's like two bees, like, flying in slow motion, and they hit each other, and they do it in different ways. Like, once they do it like romantic-style music, yeah. and another they do it like horror-style music, and it it's a good illustration of how music can inform you what the scene's supposed to be. Yeah. So I really like it when directors are more restrained and they're kind of like, bring in, you know, pull back some of the musical use. Yeah, yeah, and then also, um, I thought that the, the, the lack of music also complemented how still the camera was. Very still. Very still. Yeah. Um, aside from... Like, really, the opening shot where it's a slow zoom in, a very slow zoom in, and then the last shot of the movie, which is a which is a pan. It's a security camera. It's exactly right. That, okay, that yeah. at the very end was, like, the cherry on top of the Sunday for me. Yeah. Because I felt like it was just such a cool touch. Like, it's small, but it's such a cool touch. Like, and And that's a perfect example of a moment in a film where you make the audience work for something a little bit. Because at first you're just kind of like, why is this moving so much? Like right. it's showing, But as it keeps going, you're kind of like, oh, that's so clever. It's yeah. like a security camera uh, because that's what this is all about. Yeah. Well, and also the thing, one of the things about it is that at the very end of the movie, the secretary calls Cal and basically gives him a tongue lashing and tells him, we know what happened, and we're keeping our eye on you. And we know exactly what you say. And the one, one of the few human touches that Cowell has in the movie is he, his only hobby shown is that he Playing likes... saxophone. He plays the saxophone with classic jazz records. Mm -hmm. You know, and so um, before he gets the phone call, and this is interesting because he tells people he doesn't have a phone at home. Right. Yeah, and he goes out of his way to use payphones to make business phone calls and everything like that. Paranoia. Yeah, exactly. So the first off, the secretary is able to track down his own phone number. And then 
he plays the saxophone, a recording of the saxophone riff that Cal had been playing just right. before he picked up the phone. Yeah. So, it's, so Cal just goes crazy. He does go crazy, and it was a very interesting ending to the whole film because being a, a character piece, um, it was a, the whole film was a slow deterioration of mm-hmm. Harry Call's person. And that end scene where he goes, for lack of a better term, apeshit, yeah. and just destroys his own apartment, yeah. he has reached the final destruction phase of his deterioration. And then, and then he sits down and turns on the record player again, picks up his saxophone, and he plays it and just cries uncontrollably. Yeah, because he's broken. Because like, he's, he's, he's broken. just lost he, it. He, he accepts the fact that he is now under somebody else's control, something that he's tried to avoid the entire movie, and there's nothing he can do about it because he cannot find where the bug is in his apartment yeah. that's giving them this information. And honestly, if you look at it from an audience perspective, uh, if he would have just done his job and not gotten involved and not if, want, yeah. and not like Stan had said to him, been curious, right? Because he had said uh, curiosity, basically. Um, because that's how that's how Harry started out with it, and I assume that's how he handled most of his jobs. You know, he said, "I don't want to know. You know, I don't have a need to know. I have a client. I do the job, and I give the stuff to him." But Stan was like, "You know, I'm curious. You know, like, aren't you curious about?" It? He's like, yeah. "No." But then after that conversation is when he starts to get curious, and had he not gotten curious, he would have been in a much better situation. And let's be honest, he didn't even accomplish anything no. by getting involved. He didn't stop anything. Because he failed to understand what was actually going on in the exactly. conversation. So the person who's actually needing protecting, the executive, winds up wrapped up in a shower curtain, dead in a hotel. Yep. And that and the scene in the hotel was amazing, you know, because he's he's convinced that the executive is calling them to this hotel room to kill them and so he starts like he checks out a room next door to where they, they they're supposed to meet he starts like surveilling that and then as you're watching like the toilet starts overflowing and blood just starts bubbling out of it which that was in the beginning something I wanted to talk about yes. but I said I'll wait till later uh, but that to me was such a horror film moment yeah, yeah, in really a non horror film that I was really impressed by it because it was just it was horrific. It yeah. was creepy, it was unexpected. Um, well done. Very well, well done. And also considering the the pacing of the movie and how everything else went together, you wouldn't expect you, you might expect like some muffled like banging and some screaming or something like that. But then to have Essentially, what happens is Cal is being violated by what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He opens himself up to violation. Yeah. So then the, the the uncontrollable just starts pouring out of the toilet as a really unique visual theme that his life has gone, gone completely off the rails and he can't do anything about it anymore. Right, because the, he got curious. Yeah. Because he got involved. And it just sucks because he wasn't going to be able to do anything about no. it. Well, I mean, he could have. No, actually, he couldn't have. Because I was going to say, if he didn't hand the tapes over. 
But it didn't matter in the See, end anyway, because he thought that if he could control the tapes, it would change something, because that's when he believed that the executive was going to try and kill right. these people. But it, the other way around, actually, maybe he could have stopped it if he got the tapes to him earlier. Or what would have happened if he had given the tapes to the police? You know, he's trying. Yeah. yeah, he's trying so hard to save somebody's life. What do you do if you think someone's going to be murdered? You go to the police so that they can get, you know, pr- protection. And but instead, he decides to take on that mantle of protector himself. He is the gatekeeper, the one who is going to control what the executive gets. Which is also another interesting take on cinema in general. You know, because it with the way that the way that the film industry is set up, certain people decide what films get made, what films get put out to the public, and a lot of times they're films that are either um, formulaic or right. trashy or just not worth watching at all. So then, you know, because they're trying to control it, they get that they they open up Pandora's box with, you know, people trying to take over uh, what the film industry can do by pirating films, streaming them over the internet, um, sneaking into movie theaters, you know, or just avoiding box offices altogether because they don't like the how inflated the prices are. Right. So it can be seen as an interesting metaphor uh, on that as well. Well, for me in this film, one of the things that I really started thinking about was the moral issues with some people's lines of work. Yeah. Um, and I saw, I mean, obviously seeing it from a investigator or surveillance person's perspective, but I think also a, a good strong one to bring in is media in general. Mm-hmm. You know, how people are in the media. If you're a news reporter, you're supposed to just report what happens. If you're at a scene and something horrible's going on, you're not supposed to get involved. You're right. just supposed to observe what happens, even though if you could jump in and help out, you might be able to do some good. Right. You're not supposed to. Yeah, which is which is a very tough. It's almost like it's almost like journalists have to take a, a version of the Hippocratic Oath, right. you know, where it says do no harm. But it's not it's so more much. Like, as, um, don't do anything and just create entertainment. Right. It, it's more like report the unvarnished truth. Right. But they don't realize that anymore. That's lost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, though, I mean, the idea of the... Um, the, uh, the journalist who has no bias is a completely false idea. That's impossible. Yeah, it is. And it's kind of an, it's an American falsity that we don't see in, in media around the world. You know, other like other newspapers, like in foreign countries and everything, are they're they're allowed to have a, like a political leaning. Paper, newspapers and, and media outlets in foreign countries endorse political candidates all the time, but they don't do so here in America. So I wonder. Well, they're not supposed to, but they kind of ta- they tacitly do. Um, I wonder if you know it would be healthier for our society if. The media were more open about, you know, what they they were actually able to believe outside of just op-ed pieces, you know, because even outside of op-ed pieces, how you report a case of police like police violence, well, it could be you're saying that they're suppressing a criminal, or you're you're you can say that they're assaulting someone who whose rights they're violating. You can look at it either way. 
but you don't know really what happened until you hear all the sides of the story. Agree, agree. So and uh, I'm just trying to see. Yeah, we're running, we're running okay on time. Mm-hmm. Just trying to see because I have a bunch of other things that I want to kind ahead, of throw go out ahead. there. Um, mainly just small things. Uh, I think Gene Hackman did a very good job in this role, um, especially because I think he embodied the paranoid idea behind Harry. And I, I say it from the perspective of watching his physical acting. Yes. Not necessarily the way he was delivering lines, but his physical acting. If you notice, a lot of the times when there are situations that were potentially a bit sketchy, he gave a lot of pause, like physical pause when doing things. Uh, he was very cautious. Yeah. And I think he did an extremely good job, um, you know, looking like he was a, a paranoid person. Yeah. Not just in the way he was delivering lines, but in... I mean, that... And for me, that's that extra touch that actors can do because it's one thing to be able to deliver lines a certain way. Right. It's another thing to also have the the foresight to change your mannerisms as yeah. well. I, I actually was doing a little bit of reading, and uh, apparently Hackman, like the way that this character dressed, always like wearing uh, like business clothes and a raincoat and everything like that, um, was totally opposite from his. Th- typical persona in his mm. normal personality. Apparently, Hackman is a very um, jovial, outgoing person and everything like that. So playing someone who is so reserved, um, Hackman's also known, like I was talking about, uh, Kyle always wears business clothes. He's known for being more of like a khakis and polo kind of guy. Okay. You know, so he's very relaxed in his personal life and his personal demeanor. So playing someone who's so uptight actually made him a very irritable person to be around on set. Like Coppola commented that they got along fine while they were working, but he was a real bear to be around because he was so irritable all the time from having to do the role. I could see that because you're, it, it, I, I would see it as being kind of hard to switch gears. Yeah. If you're trying so hard to embody a different character, and then you don't want to lose how you were acting right. for your next bunch of scenes. So yeah. I, I know there are some actors that have that it's been said that they stay in character yeah. when they're not filming. And I could see the reason for that, because you don't want to sh- be in a shoot one day and act a certain way, and then come back the next day and your accent's changed a little bit, or you're you don't have the the same physical mannerisms as you had before. You're a little bit off because yeah. it's continuity issues. Yeah, and um, just just as an aside, uh, continuity. Talking about continuity, there's one movie that I love called The Fall. I've mentioned it before on the yeah, podcast. and I still haven't watched it. Yeah. Sorry. Well, no, but I got to um, get to it. One of the characters in the film is supposed to be ha- have broken his back in an accident. Right. Um. So, like in the behind the scenes footage in the in the extras, they actually show. Um, I, I thought for a while that the character, the the actor himself, was actually paralyzed because they showed him being carried out of his trailer by uh, by aides, and really. then they also showed him always on set. If he wasn't in the bed that he was that he did most of his acting in, they showed him in a wheelchair. But that was just. That was just because trying he, to be was, method actor. he was method acting yeah. the whole thing. And then, uh, but, but in other shots, he's, he's perfectly healthy and he's walking around and everything like that. Um, so that was, that kind of thing is really admirable when an actor can get into the role that much. Another thing, yeah. 
about this, though, is that Hatman actually says that this is one of his favorite performances. Really? Yeah. Well, I think he did a great job. Yeah, because because it's it's so different from his normal performance type that that it, it's something that he he thinks stands out fairly well. I can see that. Another thing I wanted to bring up that I thought was kind of funny um, is he when he was having a conversation with the girlfriend, whatever. Um, she had made a comment that when she would talk to him on the phone, she felt like he was not listening. And I just thought, like, that's kind of funny because his job is all to day, listen to everybody else. Right, is to listen to everyone else. And that's actually probably why he's not listening to her when she's talking because he comes home after a long day of work and he's like, I've been listening to people talk yes. all day. I don't feel like listening to anyone anymore. So I just thought that was kind of funny. But that also leads me to another thing that I wanted to point out, which is his job looks tedious as hell. Yes. That job looks tedious and boring, especially the part where he's in the warehouse just replaying and replaying and replaying the audio and trying to clean it up. It's actually very accurate uh, from an audio editor's perspective. When I was when I was working in, in audio and radio, that's something that we had to do. And like in my college classes for audio production, we would spend probably seven or eight hours in in the audio editing suite for about three minutes of film. Yeah. Or three minutes of audio. Um, I've had experience with that kind yeah, of stuff, too. Yeah. I've, done, I've done film editing before, and that's... It's it's a very tedious It's job. a pain. You, you get very sick of whatever you were working on um, real fast. Yes. And by the time you're actually done with your project, you don't view it the way you used to. You're, you're kind of like, I'm done with this. I don't want to see this anymore. Right. So um, I can see that. Also with editing podcasts, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. It, that can happen too. If, if you're listening, if you keep needing to, like, edit a certain area, which I've had some, for my beer podcast, I've had some episodes recently that I really have had to do more extensive editing than I usually have to. Right. Um, and that gets really tedious and... It gets frustrating, and you're listening to the same thing over and over and over again, so that when I'm done with the project, I'm like, I never want to listen to that episode ever again. Yeah. When I when I was editing Bone Thrower's Theater, um, one of our other uh, one of our other players is now taking on more of the editing role, but a lot of times I would edit it, I would listen to it through when I was editing it, and it would be like a three or four hour job. And then I wouldn't listen to it again when it when we put it up on the on no, the website. It was just like not. I'm done with this. It's too <laughs> it's much. A little, move on too much. It's like, but also other actors like William Shatner says he never watches movies that he performs in. Well, a lot of people hate their own stuff. Yeah, and I have experienced that with people who have come on um, my beer podcast because I have rotating. I basically have a rotating co-hosting uh, position. Uh, we just have random people on. And a lot of the people who come on say that they're probably not going to listen to the episode because they don't like the sound of their own voice. Right. And I'm like, I can understand that, but eventually, if you hear it enough, you get over it. You know, because everybody's voice sounds more nasally than you think. It does. But, I mean, there's also, there are also techniques that you can do to lower your voice. That's true. So. You can be like Jordan and just put on the sexy voice. And that's right. <laughs> Well, because when everything's but right. when everything is just right, um, <laughs> you almost Barry Whited that one. Yes, <laughs> Jordan, well, aka Barry White. I, I I had to study that in college actually. So. Barry White? No, no. How to how to lower your voice appropriately? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's what you learn in mass communications. Uh, but uh, something I wanted to bring up 
is there was this one scene where he's in the elevator with the woman that he was recording. Oh, yeah. You know, and how awkward would that have to be, like, when you're standing there with someone who you think is going to get murdered? Here's the thing. Okay, yes. But if you're looking at it just from the perspective of the person you've been spying on, yeah, it's only awkward for the person doing the spying because the person being spied on doesn't, doesn't know. know. They have no idea. So it's kind of like just act natural type thing. And as an audience member, when I was watching that scene, that's how I was feeling for him. I'm like, just act natural, Gene. Just act natural. It's like when uh, Han Solo in uh, Return of the Jedi tells uh, Chewbacca to fly casual. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that, that kind of thing. You yeah. know that something is going wrong, but you're not. You can't give it away. It's it's a poker face. Yeah, definitely is. Um, Trying to think if there's there's anything inter- else inter- I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff yeah. about the film, but for me, um, my wife initially I told her about the film and I told her what it was going to be about and she's like, oh, kind of interested in it, but uh, she ended up not joining me for the film because she was going to do some reading that she needed to take care of, uh, and afterwards I was like, may have been good that she didn't watch it with me because. I don't think she would have liked it so much because it is slow. It is a very slow movie. It's a slow film, but for me, it kept my interest because of the Harry Call perspective, and I felt like it was just... It's just more interesting that way because it's like you are a detective. Yeah. And you're trying to figure out what's going on. I like that kind of stuff, and when it's slower, it's good. Especially if you have interesting stuff to look at. Yes. Like... The convention scene with all that technology, like that's a slow scene, and it's for a lot of people maybe too long. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was really cool because you're seeing all these old pieces of surveillance technology, and it's just interesting. Yeah, it's kind of cool. And then seeing how the people trying to sell those things are approaching their salesmanship. Yeah. Um. So I really liked all of that stuff. But I, I told her, I was like, you know, probably good that you didn't watch it because it was probably too slow for you. I was like, but I feel like the, the payoff at the end is worth it being slow. Yeah. And Yeah. Well, yeah. I, the thing is that the movie hangs together very well as a story. Yeah. Uh, it, it hangs very well together from the perspective of we're trying to present something that is preternaturally creepy, but also slow and disjointed um so you do have to have some patience going into it uh we're pretty much at the end of the podcast do you want to go ahead and uh talk about ratings at this point go ahead and give our final thoughts and maybe yeah but real quick i wanted to say um that harry's setup was really interesting in the warehouse. Oh, the warehouse, yeah. Because not only was it his workstation, but he then had like a little area where it looked like he was kind of living too. Yeah, like he would spend. It looks like he spent like half his time at the apartment and then half of his time at the actual office sleeping. And then, and you see that when they're partying. Yeah. And then you see like all that open space mm-hmm. he has there, which is kind of creepy like it would make it creepy to work there but then also like way on the opposite end there's a black light and a palm tree and i was like that's interesting and weird and what's going on yeah. in this warehouse so honestly like within the film i just loved seeing all the different areas of his workspace yeah because yeah. you never know you never knew what you were gonna say also um one last thought san francisco in and of itself was a great character in the story 
Yeah. You know, because there's, there's like, a lot of great shots of fog rolling in on the town. Mm-hmm. And then there's, I think, in the same park where he had been recording them earlier, the, there was a fantastic dreamlike sequence that was just amazing. And the atmosphere of San Francisco was really cool to see there. And if you've watched a lot of movies with San Francisco in it, like Dirty Harry and everything, it's always interesting to see how the environment of one place when it's shot in different lo- different films with different moods and different intents can bring off a different character to the to the geographic location as well. Yeah, I agree with that. Cool. Well, I think we've covered this pretty well. Um, we can go ahead with the with the ratings. Did did you want to start? You want me to start? Why don't you go ahead and start on this one? I will kick it off. Um, I thought the script was pretty well done. Uh, I really like the fact that it was from one perspective, especially being kind of like a suspense thriller type ordeal. I think I talked about that pretty well. Uh, I think the music was used effectively, as Jordan kind of said, there were times where there was no music and it was very appropriate and it worked very well. Um, The acting was very good. It was cool and fun to see, you know, bigger names and lesser roles that you didn't know were going to be there. You're just kind of like, what? Um, but uh, other than that, I mean, it, it was kind of slow, so I could see where a lot of people might get kind of bored. Um, I will admit there were a few moments where I kind of um, picked up my phone and started messing around with it, doing other things. Yeah. Such as what people do with technology these days. Um, get distracted. But um, overall, I think it was a good film. I, th- I really enjoyed the ending. Obviously, I really enjoyed that horrific uh, blood coming out of the toilet scene, being a horror fan myself. Um, So, yeah, everything said, I think this was a solid film. Uh, I do, you know, now know that it's one of Coppola's lesser films, but I think he did quite a good job on it. Um, All things considered, I want to give it three and a half stars. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I mean, when you have... When you have Coppola directing your film and writing it, and you have Gene Hackman acting in it, uh, you know that it's going to be a good movie. You can't have a flop. No, you're you're not going to have a flop. You're going to have a good movie. Um, So, going into it, I expected it to be good. And it was a very good movie. I think that this is a movie that actually, even though it's slow, will hold up to rewatching quite a bit. I, I I think you'll get more from watching this a second time than you do watching it the first time. And most mostly because you know what happens in the end, so exactly. you can view it through a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. and you can, get, you can get some of the layers there that you didn't catch the first time, and I know I miss stuff when I watch it the oh, first yeah. time. So I'm really excited to go back and see what actually happens with it, just in general. I love how disjointed the dialogue was. The, the script was fantastically written so that there was context there that you didn't, that you had to work to get. So even though it was a slow movie, it was a very mental movie. Um, it, it did a great job of capturing the feel that the characters were under surveillance, and that you yourself were the ones who were performing the surveillance. And uh, it like it did a great job with the music and the geography and pretty much everything about it. Like I said, very re- rewatchable, even though it's slow. Um, I would give it a three and a half as well. Uh, I think I think it's something that I will have to come back to and reassess in about a year or so. Yeah. 
but I think this is definitely one to watch if, you, if it's a rainy day outside and you're kind of in a mood to be a little paranoid. <laughs> I don't think anyone's really in a mood to be paranoid. Well, I mean, you, you know, sometimes you, you, you like that kind of entertainment, though. Okay, yeah, from the aspect of watching, like, thrillers. Yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. Exactly. Which I always love. Always. So, yeah, you know, I might go back to, to the conversation and, and kind of watch it through different eyes yeah. a second time. Um, that's a three and a half stars overall for the podcast. That's a good showing. It is a very good showing. Um, cool. So, reminder to everyone, if you want to get your... Um, recommendation bumped to the top of our list if even if you haven't sent one in you can send one in absolutely get it bumped to the top of the list by going on to itunes and giving us a star rating and a review Mm -hmm. and then let us know that you did that in an email you send us and tell us what film you want us to review but please do keep in mind that uh, it has to be a film that's currently on netflix streaming yeah uh, when you send us that email. Also, if you if you want to do the same thing, but in a different location, like on a on a blog message post in a forum, or you know maybe even a YouTube video or whatever you want to do, go ahead and just send us a link. We'll be more than glad to offer you the same consideration. I would even go so far as to say if you can legitimately talk someone into listening to at least one episode yes. of the podcast, let us know that you successfully did that. Or if you were driving somewhere and you held people captive and you made them listen to an episode, <laughs> then we will. Then we will. Um, what will we do? We'll have to do something very special for someone who like holds cap- people captive. Hold people <laughs> captive. We might. We might send deny you, any involvement. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we might send them their own ransom note or something. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Hope you have a great week. Hope you enjoy some really good movies. You've been listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night. Our theme music was provided by Sweet Wave Audio. To find more royalty-free music for your own projects, check out sweetwaveaudio.co.uk. And special thanks to Ariana Ramos for her graphic design savvy helping us with our album art. Visit our website at mostexcellentmovienight.com to listen to other episodes, give us your opinion, and share with us other movies you'd like to have reviewed. You can also contact us through our email address, mostexcellentmovienight.com at gmail.com. We would love to read them on the air. Also, if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes, we would be your friends for life. For sure. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night, where movies are most excellent. This has been a Nerd Circle Podcast Production.